Okay, so welcome back to the Cracks in Postmodernity. We have a special guest, Zach Langley Chichi, who is an American drag queen in Japan and the host of I'm So Popular podcast. So thank you, Zach, for joining us. Thanks for having me. So uh, I want to start just by trying to understand your philosophy of drag. What does it mean to you? Why is it significant? All of that. Yeah, it's a great question. I think that my philosophy of drag comes from the fact that when I was in my early 20s, I decided to do a rigorous self-education in gay literature. And I basically spent two years ferociously reading all of the popular gay writers and novelists and uh, watching like Greg Araki movies and just trying to totally submerge myself in the homosexual worldview. And I had initially been a little bit disgusted by drag, actually. I have like um, a visceral memory of a particularly flaming homosexual in high school who loved Drag Race, who never shut up about it. So I'd kind of come to the conclusion that it was gross misogyny. But <laughs> after doing my, um, my bathing in homosexual art, I realized that drag is kind of the epitome of every fascinating piece of what it means to be a gay man. It is a performance of suffering. It is an illustrative sculpture in which the gaps between gay desire and the actual tangible universe are unveiled. It is uh, glamorous and upsetting and abject. And I think any you know real drag queen worth her dirt is uh, someone who kind of shocks and appalls. And because that's been the nature of drag from its onset, um, it gets to persist no matter how steam ironed it is in the face of liberalism these days. But that's my general philosophy. It's all about um, a performance of suffering. It's about envisioning the world and recreating it uh, through a sort of bitter homosexual lens and it's about um disgust and horror it's interesting that you say disgust because i remember the first time i saw a drag show my immediate reaction was one of disgust like i was like there's something very grotesque about what's happening here because you're presenting to me something that's i mean ultimately artificial but in such an extravagant elaborate way so over mm -hmm. the top like this is a man presenting himself to me as a woman um and as much as it's grotesque and kind of i don't know repulsive it's enticing it draws mm -hmm. you in and it ultimately makes you it's an invitation to contemplate the true nature of of gender of of human nature of suffering as you said and i think there's so i mean as you said like the this kind of liberal neoliberal um lens that it's being filtered through now through the pop culture and media like kind of flattens that that symbolism the depth of it um so that being said i do want to hear your hot take on drag queen story hour since everybody has something to say about it nowadays oh everyone just has you know their little kiki to put in they just want to chit and chat about it all day but I um, was anti-Drag Queen Story Hour like three years ago because I think it's a 
misuse of a good drag queen's time. You know, you were just telling me about how you were a little, you know, grossed out the first time you see one. And um, I think that is half the point. It's to be confrontational and upsetting. I don't think drag queens who make their money rolling around in clubs and, you know, masochistically violating themselves on stage basically in order to make a buck and express themselves it doesn't really seem like the correct avenue is to turn them into an ambassador for the lgbtq community i like that (laughs) but um the sort of horrific mania that has arisen about it i find deeply uncompelling because the thing is, is that I think actually most drag queens would kind of agree that drag queen story hour is sort of lame and boring. Yeah. <laughs> like I think most would, but the um, ridiculous reaction to it comes from this obnoxious tendency from both the left and the right, which is the all-consuming fear of pedophilia and um, the urge to silence and censor every art movement in the name of protecting the kids. You'll always hear this. And, you know, I'm totally here for the abolishment of Drag Queen Story Hour, but not if it's for some ridiculous phantom of pedophilia and grooming. Because the last thing (laughs) most drag queens want is to fuck a child. They want, like, real men, you know? (laughs) Like, you gotta have a little hair on your chest if you're gonna turn on a drag queen. So the paranoia about it is just so abhorrent. But I'm not really here for the event itself, honestly. Yeah. No, I mean, I think there are two... For me, there are two sides. Like, there's first the integrity of the drag show. I mean, a Mm. good drag show... Is not gonna you're not gonna do it in a public library like it's such a boring space <laughs> like it's supposed to be lively and over the top you can't do that in a library so like you're really flattening out the whole experience of it mm-hmm. and compromising like again like the kind of symbolism of drag um but then the other thing i mean i do i i would agree that what you're saying like most drag queens are not interested in you know perverting little kids but I do wonder, like, drag is, I think, an inherently sexual performance. Like, there is something, you know, sexual about it. And I don't think kids are able to process that. Like, they're not in a position to understand and make sense of it. So I'm like, on the one hand, this is not a space for a drag show. But also, like, I don't think kids are... Like, it requires a certain maturity to understand the commentary of drag, the symbolism. And I'm like, I don't think it's a thing that kids are meant to enjoy or appreciate. I mean, it just isn't designed for them. Like, um, it really just isn't. The ideal realm to view a drag queen in her natural element is about 2.30 a.m. when you've had about 4 to 12 gin and tonics and you can't really see straight uh, and you're, like, distantly horny and you have all of these mm, sort of bizarre sexual miasmas floating around you. That is the moment when a drag queen performance can resonate. It's not in a library. And if it were to be in a library, they should just really go for breaking all the rules and do like, you know, divine and like they should like be eating shit and like, you know, cutting off limbs and like screaming on the floor of the library and not reading a book. 
Yeah, I mean, and there's this whole, as you're saying, like, you have to be in another state of mind, like, there's this subterranean kind of ethos mm -hmm. up that's, again, that the public library is not a setting for that kind of show. No, so, the subterranean yeah. thing is exactly right. Um, I, I think secretly, one of the most um, illustrating pieces of art that's ever really spoken to drag is the Silencio scenes in Mulholland Drive, where uh, it's revealed that this huge emotional performance is actually just a track in the background you know like yeah. that's that's the the strange like subterranean universe of drag and, and drag performance it's it's just not reading what like yeah. the hungry hungry caterpillar <laughs> I don't, like what do you i don't know yeah. what do they read there i can't even imagine but like when you look at the way that people are framing it like I, I wrote a thing about in New York, the mayor, Eric Adams, was saying like, oh, we love Drag Queen Story Hour because it promotes diversity and tolerance and self-expression. And I'm like, you don't understand what drag is about. Like, that's not, it's not this kind of ploy for neoliberal uh, identity politics. Like, it's something very different. And again, you're compromising the nature of this type of art. Like, it's, it's not... They're filtering it through this lens that's not, it doesn't fit into. There is a genre of gay people that are meant to speak to, uh, how can I say this? I'm getting in trouble. <laughs> I'm not going to say meant to speak to children, but there's like um a subset of like friendly gay person who is very asexual and uh, sort of castrated and does like public service jobs, like a nurse or a right. government official or a teacher. <laughs> Exactly. Like that that is a, a subgenre of gay people that you know what you can put them in a library and give them Thomas a tank engine, but it really doesn't need to be like Angina or Sharon Needles or Zach Langley Chichi, that's for sure. Yeah. Um so I know I want to go back to a point you said before. What do you how do you respond to people who say there is something misogynistic about drag or that like kind of mocks femininity or women? You're right. <laughs> That's why it's fun. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. The the thing about drag is that it is so it, it really elucidates so much of the gender and sexual tensions that come from the gay male perspective. And of course, there is a little bit of triumph over the woman in the gay male experience, which is that we get to have the liberated free lives of the of the male individual, but um, we also will never be loved by straight men in the in the way that straight women can. So we have this uh, sort of tense relationship with them, and uh, I think that this uh, very you know jokey kind of cruel mockery of of women that can also be you know very beautiful and touching at times. I think that is just the perfect summation of what it means to be mm -hmm. a gay man who uh, must interact with the female species. Interesting. And that kind of taps into what I was saying before, um, the difference between Judith Butler's and Camille Paglia's commentaries on drag, because Butler's whole thing with performativity theory is that all gender is performative, like these sexual, the you know, the binary is not real, ultimately. Mm -hmm. So that drag is kind of a commentary. It's um, like the performativity of drag is a commentary on how all gender is performative and is not essentially real. Whereas Palia, she's saying that the performance confirms the gender difference, that 
there um there are these metaphysical essential differences between male and female and that drag is highlighting it by making this this show out of it this elaborate kind mm -hmm. of you know and i feel like i mean obviously i agree with palia more but i think what you're saying kind of confirms that like yeah it's a commentary on this very real difference yeah and i think there's you know room in the middle like i i think that there's certainly something to be said that yeah it is um sort of a psychedelic art piece that does reveal a great irony and performance of everything but you're right i think that it it's much more closer to polia and the the best like litmus test for this question is who could you imagine more at a drag show judith butler or polia like who's gonna have more fun like who's gonna be living boots exactly that's a good we point. all know who it is <laughs> answer. it's pretty obvious um can you say anything about like do you think drag sheds any light on the trans experience in any way hmm you know and maybe one of my more incendiary takes is that uh i think that trans women are doing drag you know i think that they are they're women who live their lives as women and are seen that way but they are creating an artistic presentation of themselves through a curated uh, female art form they're uh, reimagining themselves and forcing their willpower into the world as these you know womanly creatures and i think it certainly does require a little bit of affectation and um, mm. curation that comes from drag. And of course, there's, um, you know, a little bit of a divide, I think, between trans women who previously identified as straight men and uh, transgender women who previously identified as gay men. Okay. And maybe the continuum of elevated female performance is a little bit more visible with uh, trans women who were once upon a time identifying as gay men mm -hmm. does that make sense yeah that that's an interesting <laughs> yeah no I mean, I call, but... people think i'm trans all the time i like whenever i like get popped up on like reddit or whatever and people are discussing me and i'm name searching they're always when is she gonna transition already how is she gonna <laughs> deny herself but you know <laughs> do you i mean I, I, yeah like how do you feel when you hear those kinds of comments like does that feel like something just super like foreign to you <laughs> yeah I mean what gay man hasn't asked themselves once or twice like am I really a girl you know like weepy in their eye like clutching a book of poetry or something but um no I'm a man I love being a gay man and there's a there's just no way to stop that unfortunately so it's just kind of funny to me I'm like wow you really don't know anything about anything <laughs> interesting okay so I want to go to some of your tweets very fascinating tweets so there's one a few days ago so where you talk <laughs> about what did you say Kind of funny how transparently pathetic most people are when begging for attention. At this point, I'm convinced it's just drag queens and a limited number of gay men who can pull off the lust for recognition in any compelling way, a compelling or amusing way. Um, explain that, this, uh, <laughs> these attempts to grab for attention. I'm very curious to hear more about this hot take. Well, this is virtually like if Dante were designing some specific torture for me, it would be having my own tweets read back to me. <laughs> but um, I think in, in that case, I was 
lately, I think this summer, um, on my own podcast, I've been reflecting a lot about the internet lately and um, sort of the terror of it. I have been developing more of a discerning eye for just how embarrassing it is in the way that people will kind of flagellate in public for attention mm -hmm. and uh, they lack a lot of self-awareness about it. So with this current um, bend of like trad Catholicism and these, uh, you know, straight men who are doing a very embarrassing little drag show of like fitness and ancient strength values. Mm -hmm. I think that with drag queens and gay men are, you know, effeminate, Oscar Wilde art interests gives us a little bit of elevation and an ability to turn it into a little bit of a, a joke and a, yeah. an all-encompassing narrative. But with everyone else, these boring straight people, it just comes across as deeply embarrassing, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, I'm noticing how people, I mean, look, like everybody wants attention. Everyone wants to be loved. Sure. This is universal. But when you bring social media into the mix, people really latch on to it as a means to project this need for attention and affirmation. But very few people do so in an ironic way. Like, I think the only way you could do that with integrity is to be like, yo, like poke fun at yourself and be like, yeah, like I'm desperate for attention. And that's why I'm posting this picture of myself. Um, but yeah, it's true that I think the vast majority of people don't know how to do that or are not conscious of the fact that they're desperate for attention and like i think you're right like you see these kind of trad whatever men who are posting mm -hmm. whatever about pictures of themselves but also women who are posting thirst traps um or another silly example like this last weekend in new york there was the big bad bunny concert everybody who went had to have their photo op like everyone is posing in front of the yankee stadium or on the subway and i'm like this is this is so loaded that like you really need to perform your your cry for affirmation to prove that whatever it's like first of all i didn't go because i don't want to spend dollars <laughs> on a ticket um, uh -huh. but i was like if i went i would have taken stupid pictures of myself but i would have presented it in an ironic way because like i can't take myself seriously and post it as if it's a serious thing like without that meta irony like I just don't feel like I have integrity yeah I understand that completely and I think a, a popular conversation is around uh, irony versus sincerity and, and which is you know more useful uh but I find it to be sort of a a wrong inquiry like you have to be sincere in your irony and ironic in your sincerity. It's sort mm -hmm. of um, a spectrum of curation of the self, right? Like yeah. you have to be able, I mean, you just have to be able to look a little bit beyond yourself to see how you're perceived. It's um, it's like a basic human social quality. And the internet puts up a lot of obscuring borders that makes it very challenging for people. Yeah. And like, I think what you said just about the kind of wildy and sensibility, I really felt that um, when everyone in the US was in hysterics over Roe being overturned, mm -hmm. because like, I mean, I follow people all over the spectrum on this issue. And I just saw like, 
this false sincerity everywhere like you have the people who are freaking out they're like oh my my right to get an abortion is gone and then the people who are like oh they're killing the babies and it's like mm-hmm. at what point like are you really taking yourself seriously as you post these like very righteous <laughs> moral uh-huh. like, this i don't know the the virtue signaling thing is such a fascinating phenomenon to me because like again i i feel like most activism or most moralistic posts on the internet it's all performative like it's all a projection of these kinds of unresolved whatever psychological wounds and that i don't know for me like if someone is very is truly interested in some form of activism or social progress like that's not something you post on the internet about it's something that like becomes part of your lifestyle like it's part of your you know it's integrated into your daily life it's not something you project onto you know the public stage but people don't seem to like people really believe like i am so righteous for speaking the truth on social media and i'm like no it's all a, it's all a show i could see all of this kind of barreling to the state that it's arrived at um unfortunately with the black lives matter movement around george floyd which of course was a great tragedy and for a moment I thought would be some sort of um, useful rallying cry for unheard people in America to, you know, really do something productive, but instead it turned into the black box Instagram syndrome and Mm -hmm. everyone was posting these black holes on their Instagram and creating these bizarre social obligations to both post and to not post. And that strange dichotomy there, I think was uh, one of the, apex points in this long mountain we're climbing up of um strange sort of conditioning into thinking that we must you know physicalize our urge to activism and our empathy for others onto the internet when you know anyone who's doing something real is doing it in person almost silently yeah i mean i think first like you're the that kind of silent activism involves a certain level of humility and self-awareness but I don't know. I just I find it fascinating that people really think that posting whatever social thing like is a virtuous act in itself. It's just it really reflects the disintegration from between yeah. our social media presence and our everyday lives. Because a lot of people who I see posting stuff like live very mundane, kind of self-centered bourgeois lives. And I'm like, at what point do you do you see the cognitive dissonance here? exactly like we lack the capacity for that level of self-awareness of self-critique that wild people like wild had were super self-aware of his contradictions absolutely i mean i i wonder what kind of like uh development or gift or you know talent it takes to be able to be self-aware but the quality seems to be rapidly diminishing the further we plunge into modernity (laughs) yeah Hmm. So I'm going back to the original point there about the tweet. Do you have a lot of other things that you say kind of (laughs) psychoanalyzing straight Uh, men? I'm curious to hear more. You know what I'm curious to hear? Your analysis of straight male masculinity in the U.S. versus Japan. Like what differences, what similarities do you see? Well, I think like America, I think masculinity is facing, you know, difficult times in the face of uh, gender equality. Um, I think people are 
struggling to imagine their new social roles uh, when in Japan, especially women are frequently making, you know, more money than men are, mm-hmm. um, or are on the same level as them. Uh, is that like a, I forgot, or is America still running with the narrative that women like make less than men usually? Yes. Oh, okay. Well, still there. Huh. I mean, the net, like you have the fringe, like internet people who are starting to say like, oh, men are, you know, disenfranchised and right. no bosses, but <laughs> that's not the neo-lib narrative of course okay well i think the problem is a little less worse in japan (laughs) because i think um the social roles are very baked into the public conscious and um still to this day the kind of early 2010s image of the shrieking i guess it was earlier than that like maybe mid-2000s like hairy shrieking feminist like i always think about that legally blonde like lesbian character oh yeah yeah, that yeah, character, yeah, that persists in Japan, and people are quite irritated and irked by people who must inject social justice into the public conscious. So, like, we're trying to be polite and serene, so nobody wants to hear a mosquito buzzing about. But, mm-hmm. um, so despite it being a little less worse there, um, I think that men in this country do have a, a very long history of a very precise role, and, um, because of that, the expectations for them are, are very different. And Japanese men, I think, mature a lot more slowly than uh, men in the West do. And I've heard this as well from plenty of Japanese people, but your 20s to 30s is kind of like when in, in America, you're 20 to 22. So men are kind of like very um, so boyish and rowdy and misbehaving um, all the way up until 30. But as soon as the baby's born, things kind of you know change a little bit. But my ultimate sort of conclusion about it is that I much prefer masculinity in Japan because uh, I rarely see any of the sort of whipped celery men <laughs> who like just uh, you know listen to what they're told by their girlfriend and adopt their social views and politics and hobbies and um, fade into a sad golden retriever and the domestic lifestyle. I think men here are still, uh, God, I sound like a fucking, like, I sound like a conservative, like a <laughs> talking head here, but they're still very masculine. And uh, I don't think that's like useful for the, for the progress of society. I just think mm-hmm. it's really hot. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I mean, my observation, I mean, I I really don't know much about Japanese culture today, but I have seen, I see a very big difference in my interactions with men in general in the US versus men in Europe, the Mediterranean, because that's where my roots are. Mm -hmm. Um, I see a real difference just in um, just self-awareness, sense of just integration, personality being more integrated, but also in the way that men live friendship, because like in Europe, there's more of a sense that like, you're supposed to show that you care about your friends, like not in like a super sentimental way, but like, you're supposed to be transparent. You're supposed to be affectionate. You're supposed to be available. Whereas in the U S I feel like men just don't have the capacity to do that not only that it's frowned upon just like psychologically maybe it's because you're saying like this kind of youth thing that like takes men a while to grow up like i see a real immaturity in relationships like a lack of 
a lack of, a, you know, intimacy and availability. Do you, Very what true. do you see in terms of relationships between men in That's Japan? a great question. I'm glad you led me onto that. That was kind of like the key point I was missing yeah. here is that, you know, men in this country have very, very intimate, close relationships with each other because it's not frowned upon, but it is less common for women and men to be sharing a social scene. And when you're in Shinjuku, it's mostly men. And every once in a while, there'd be maybe one or two girls and they'll usually be dating one of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And in fact, in my office, it would be very strange if I went out to lunch with um, any of my female Japanese colleagues people would think it's a little questionable so the friend groups are are very solidified and I think the art and uh, you know especially anime and uh, you know filmmaking really emphasizes uh, just how strong those bonds are with each other and in comparison to the west you can kind of see like a dismantling of it to a degree I mean it seems, at least from my perception, I haven't been back to America in over four years now, but it seems that there's like less of an emphasis on typical like male bonding activities like sports or uh, I know that Greek life and fraternities are really being quickly dismantled. And mm-hmm. um, despite the fact I was never really a smash head on my basketball team, um, my fraternity was a really wonderful uh, experience that very much shaped my worldview. Mm-hmm. Um, so since we're on Japanese men, do you have a hot take on Mishima? Oh, of course. Right. Tell me the hot take. Um, everyone is wrong about him except for me and no one should be allowed to read him unless <laughs> they apply directly to me. And then I will decide if they are allowed to or not. Okay. <laughs> the the yeah. hot take is just that no one understands what he was doing. Um, people imagine him as like a samurai conservative you know, political bodybuilder. The fact of the matter is like, he's like a prissy queen. He never got that fit. I mean, he was like ripped, but I mean, he never got like big or anything. He was never that phenomenal. And uh, his rightist politics was just a grandiose staging of no theater. Like people under just do not understand he was like doing large scale homosexual performance art um, and have instead um, tritely elected to use his written word as political philosophy which he would have been disgusted by he <laughs> endlessly criticizes the back and forth of contemporary politics where death and life have no meaning and there are no stakes so anyone who uses mishima for a political point is stupid and wrong <laughs> about him it <laughs> shouldn't be reading him in the first place and the way you can do a litmus test on people is you can ask them what mishima book they've read if they say they have read Sun and Steel and nothing else. They do not know what they are talking about. They have to have read either Confessions of a Mask or Forbidden Colors or like for fuck's sake, like, I don't know anything. It's like, But if it's only Sun and Steel, they're deceiving you. Okay. Well, I have to plead guilty because I've only read Sun. No, wait, I read Sun and Steel and then I read two of the short stories. In... Well, that's great. What is the collection of short stories? Uh, Death in Midsummer. Probably. The one you might have read is Patriotism, which unfortunately also is in the same uh, vein. Well, I read the one where he was at school and he smoked the cigarette with the older kids Uh, and he choked on it. Um, I don't remember the title, unfortunately. Yeah. And there is one, some St. Sebastian related one. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard from people who have more of the kind of conservative take on him. Um, yeah, like, I, it does make sense that his whole, like, the homo-fascist aesthetic, like, you know, it seems pretty performative. Um, the His death and the, like, the coup and then the suicide, like, it just seemed a little... Fruity. Yeah, I was like, what, what are you doing? Like, you really think you're going to take... I don't know, it just seemed like... Well, to be honest, I find it tragic, too. Um, yeah. I don't like when people noblize it. Um, I, I respect his... The arc of his artistic life, but he had much... He could have won the Nobel Prize. I mean, he had come very close many times, and it was... He just could have pushed a little bit more. Like, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I'm glad that he made his life what he wanted it to be, but I find his death very scary and upsetting. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing, what do they call it? The way that you have to stab yourself internally? Yeah, that's like really, first of all, it sounds very difficult, but also... Well, he failed too. Yeah, so... They haven't really <laughs> depicted this before, but the way he, the manner in which he died is um, worse than just the seppuku because he intended to cut himself open with a sword, dip oh. a paintbrush in and write his final haiku. Yeah, um, okay. He was not capable of writing the haiku. He began to spasm once the sword was about three quarters of the way through. And his uh, young lover and compatriota Morita uh, was set to be the one who beheaded him and relieved him of the pain. So he swung the sword to supposed to hit the neck and behead him and he missed uh and it hit a little lower mm. on the neck yeah. his head went like this yeah. he was completely conscious he had to swing again and then he missed and hit him in the back <laughs> oops nah, I'm not into that. yeah nah. <laughs> um i had a thought do you know are you into shusaku endo at all um i have read silence and yeah. actually i think the the next book I'm going to read is maybe not the next, but in the next month or so is about the French guy who's Jesus and walks around Japan, but I can't remember the name of it. Oh, I know which one you're talking about. Um, do you have a hot take on silence? It's okay. okay. <laughs> I wasn't very moved. I mean, um, I, I think a lot of writers of his age, there's um, a formalism that isn't quite so heart wrenching. And, uh, Kawabata also falls into that a lot where he definitely has beautiful mournful melancholic feelings and Endo definitely does too but too bad it just doesn't really hit because the formalism is so severe but it's not a bad novel and I love the Scorsese adaptation you like it I do yeah yeah I mean I do think Endo's raising a very at least being a super theological person i think he raises very interesting questions about japan being a swamp and if like christianity can really sink its roots or not um and like you know if for people who believe in christianity is it truly universal if you know there's a culture like japan that has such a hard time receiving those roots i don't know it raises a lot of interesting questions yeah i think it's interesting i'd like to reread it again i, I haven't read it for like five years and i think it, it is a great novel i just it didn't lift up my soul yeah mm. <laughs> understandable um but no so back to mishima i have a question about thirst traps particularly coming from men on social media my theory and i want to hear your thoughts on this the proliferation of men posting these pictures of themselves on the on social media 
to me, I think it's this kind of inversion of the male gaze. There's something, I don't know, I think it, it is a feminization of men because typically who i forget what who is the sociologist who said it but it's that like men look at women and women look at men looking at them like it's right this outward the gaze is outward it's always on something else rather than inward focused and i feel like because of just the the trajectory of western culture men are really useless now like i think just the <laughs> yeah. role of technology and also like women in the workforce it's just like men don't really serve a function and now that we feel like pretty useless there's nothing we can do other than to like ask for attention and like invert this gaze so uh, i don't know like my my input on that right yeah tell me well um I'm working on uh, redeveloping my philosophy a little bit from, you know, what to do about it and just actually leaning in um, like, okay, the consequences of a generation of men who are deindustrialized and sort of uh, confined to the realm of the email job. That's sad. Um, there's nothing in my power or anyone's, I think, that we can just, uh, you know, switch and uh, restore a lively masculinity to them. So why not lean in? Like, oh, how exciting. All of these stupid men are grooming themselves to be, uh, quote, himbos, unquote, and are posting gratuitous, you know, nasty photos of everything but the hole. Why not? Let's just, let's just sexualize everything. Let's go all the way into the hole. Why not? Mm. What do you, like, when you see men posting it, like, what is your analysis of what's going on in their minds? Like, what do you think this is, like, a projection of? Unfortunately, <laughs> I think my own uh, libido can overcome quite a lot of uh, critical thinking. And if I see someone I find is attractive, what their inner their inner world becomes meaningless to me. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. I'm, just, I'm just being facetious, but... Um, you know, of course, there is like a sort of um, unattractive narcissism and the double entendre, that's not the word I was looking for, the, the paradox here is that they have, in order to overcome that like icky, like mewling sort of narcissism of the selfie, they have to become very adroit at taking a good selfie. So you mm -hmm. actually have to go so deep in that you like reach an apex point of it. But uh, I will say there is um, there is a charming and boyish um, quality to a poorly taken selfie by a man uh, when they take it from the wrong angle or it's a little blurry or they have like a zit on their face or the setting doesn't make sense. Okay, that, that works for me. That kind of suggests a brutish masculinity. But once it's a little bit too posed, then it's a little, it's a little gay, isn't it? Yeah, I mean... I don't know, like one of the things that really gets me wondering is when you go to the gym and you see men like taking these mirror selfies, I'm like, this is um, such an interesting moment because the whole idea of strength, masculinity, whatever, like typically is oriented to not just, it's like you you develop your strength for the sake of performing some kind of job or accomplishing something or just demonstrating that you know like you're virile as a man like you have this potential but again under this kind of technocratic industrial paradigm 
becomes this mere aesthetic performative thing. And the only value of it is to post it on the internet and get attention the way that a woman would post pictures of her hot body. Again, there's no use for a woman having a hot body. Like it's actually, you know, not useful if you're going to have babies, like you need a little cushion, you need some curves, but Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's why, like, I find it so. I what I find most fascinating is the lack of self consciousness. It's just that, like, I think men intuitively recognize that their masculinity serves no purpose. They see everybody posting these pictures on the internet, so I may as well do it. But like, never stopping to ask, like, wait, what does this mean? Like, why am I doing this? Yeah, I wish that I could come up with like a good and scholastic take on it. But unfortunately, the second I see a nice gym selfie, you know, <laughs> it's like chimpo mode. It's over for me, <laughs> like a hooting and hollering. So whatever. <laughs> That's my take. Interesting. But so then the other thing, just like extending to thirst traps more broadly, whether men or women or whatever, um, what I again like I find this lack of ironic self-awareness to be interesting and like when you think of either straight up porn or advertisement advertisements that are sexual in nature there's always a sense that that presentation of sexualized bodies is it's removed from everyday life there is something inherently performative mm-hmm. about it whether in porn or advertisements whereas thirst traps I feel like if someone posts them on their Instagram feed, like it's presenting it as if it is integrated into their personal life. So let's say again, a guy at the gym, mm-hmm. a part of his daily routine, I go to the gym, I'm taking a picture of myself now, or a woman who's at the beach and she takes a picture in her bathing suit, or even a woman at the gym, whatever. Like there's this this performativity that doesn't acknowledge itself. And that I find that very fascinating. Cause like I, I don't know. I basically I'm saying I see a very big distinction between sexual portrayals of bodies in porn and advertisements versus on social media posted by the person themselves. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And I think that there is there is a good cure. Ooh, sorry, my microphone almost fell over. Um, there is like a a possibility for you know, an ecstatic curatorial experience from the internet feed. Kim Kardashian is 100% proof of that to me. Mm-hmm. I think she's one of the greatest living artists who has been able to turn her her life and her image and her sexuality and what we both know and don't know about her into a glittering, like long form epistolary novel written to the public. And I find that just beautiful. And I love seeing her post her thirst traps. I find it to be fascinating um and you know you kind of have to figure out a way whether it's through a little bit of self-consciousness or you know irony or artistic intent to um present yourself online no matter if you're just you know posting your tits or your pecs or whatever you have to you have to use this surface that we all use to connect with one another in, in a knowing way um and I think you have to like lean in a little bit to it because it's it's not going away. Instagram is like turning into TikTok and it's all quickly transforming into nightmarish new visions. But I mean, we're buckled in now. So you may as well try to turn it into art while you can. Mm. And I don't know what the right like passage is to do that. It's drag. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think drag does serve an educational kind of value in that sense. The 
I, yeah, I, I'm just like very transfixed by this lack of self-conscious irony that like, I think everyone would be much healthier if they develop that because I don't know, like I feel bad for people who are actually posting these things desperate for attention, but not aware of why they're doing it. Like kind of you become a slave to this whole, I don't know, this whole trend without understanding what it's really about. I think the only people I've encountered that give me that impression are kind of like Instagram influencers. And mm -hmm. I, even that I'm like, not so sure. It's like more like um, these like very bourgeoisie, like uh, 200,000 follower accounts or whatever, or like X reality TV personalities that I thirst follow and stuff. Sometimes I see like the nasty lack of self-awareness there, but for the most part, I think uh, at least the people I hold in my life seem to have a little bit of a winking eye towards the whole thing. Yeah, because like I feel like if you don't have that, like you have, you have to do it. Oh, with wait, you're in New York, right? Sorry, in New York. Yeah. Okay, that well, explains New it. Jersey. I don't want the New Yorkers to get mad at me, but basically <laughs> New York. Yes. Okay, but see, the New Yorkers, they don't fucking. Those people can't think two inches outside their own damn forehead. <laughs> yeah, you know I, it's true. I know. It's, it, the, the 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 wretched psychic calamity is centered out of New York. I'm sure yeah, of this. Um, New York's a special place, say the least. But yeah, I mean, it's like, I think at a certain point, you have to acknowledge this need for affirmation, this need to feel approved of is ultimately not going to be fulfilled mm -hmm. by getting these likes. Like, that's obvious. But again, if you're posting stuff without that ironic self-awareness, like, yeah, I'm posting this picture because I want people to like it. So then people will make me feel good. But ultimately, mm -hmm. it's not going to do it. It's like, that's such a... I think it does become at the risk of being like overly sentimental, like it does end up becoming this kind of toxic dynamic that you keep posting, hoping that eventually I'm going to be satisfied. But like, again, like at a certain point you have to realize it's not going to happen. Like mm -hmm. it's not going to come from there. Do it by all means, but just do it consciously of, you know, the irony of it all. Sure. Yeah um honey hot takes on tiktok since you mentioned it i don't like it i don't like looking at it i don't like thinking about it um even when there's like hot guys on it that i like want to like leer upon the medium makes me feel very unstimulated and you i think find it's it... like a ploy to like send demons into the cosmos and possess yeah. the people yeah it's like literally like an ancient like chinese like demon from like the fourth century like come back to like rip the world apart yeah i mean i've i have friends who said they fell asleep watching tiktok and then had that's not dreams. okay <laughs> that's no, like they, they had demonic dreams after so like i think there's definitely something in there i don't i don't have a tiktok but instagram is bringing me close so can't mm -hmm. the basically everyone has a tiktok if you have an instagram even if you don't want to watch those just unfortunate reels like mass pushed out of the third world it's like you know <laughs> i don't even know what country these people are in and they're like throwing like goats around and like doing little dances and like broken down buildings and it all like seems that it was shot on a flip phone in 2007 like yeah. and it just like is constantly like rotating at you and you can't run away it will always come back to you yeah, I mean, the demons aside, I do find it scary how it is breaking down people's attention spans and capacity to like think critically, mm -hmm. like it's making people stupid. People can't even watch a movie. Now. No, I can't. I can't watch a movie anymore, unfortunately. 
Yeah, I'm trying to detox. It's hard though. Well, you gotta go. the The trick is to go to the theater because then there are rules. Yes. Then you yeah, cannot. Right. So go see. You know, if you're near New York, there's so many art theaters, baby. You can go see mm-hmm. all sorts of stuff from 30 exactly. to 40 years ago. It's a great time. That's why New York is great, even though everyone's crazy. Yeah, no, we need we need boundaries, we need limits, because otherwise we're just gonna go all out and mm-hmm. lose our minds. Um, 